0: Just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike.
1: Good morning. Welcome to the latest installment of Money Management. We are your antidote to conventional wisdom. My name is Mike Mail, and we're all set for another hour of financial news, a recap on what's been going on in the economic world, and most importantly, how all of that affects you. And let's start with our data dump. How would we finish the week? Well, pretty much unchanged from the week before. The Dow was at 33,869, higher by 169 points. S&P up at 4090. The Nasdaq closed at 11,718. Russell 2000 finished the week at 1918. Gold settled at 1874 an ounce. Silver at $22.05 an ounce. Crude rose on uh, the Russian announcement that they're cutting back about 5% of their production. It uh, ended at $79.72 a barrel. Ten-year treasury up at 3.74%, and soft white wheat uh, finished the week bid at eight fifty a bushel. Now, the big economic report, uh, the biggest economic report we have coming out next week will be Tuesday, That will have the January consumer price index numbers and while we've had the last few of them suggesting we're trending lower in the right direction, we'll have to go to see what else, uh, if it's still going to continue that way. And then Wednesday we get retail sales and industrial production. Thursday housing starts, so kind of busy but not too much and we'll also have uh, fewer earnings reports so things could perhaps calm down just a little bit. Now... Excuse me. Uh, Week before last, not just yesterday, but week before last, the stock market did something it had never done before. The S&P gained more than 1% on the day before the Fed announcement, the day of the Fed announcement, and the day after the Fed announcement. And uh, as a result, the S&P hit a um, five-month high uh, a week ago Thursday. And... The S&P formed, it's a technical thing, it's called uh, the Golden Cross. And that happens when a 50-day moving average goes through and above what's called the 200-day moving average. Now, moving averages are simply the averages of the last 50 or 200 closing prices, so no big math there. But many investors uh, seem to be looking past uh, rate hikes and poor earnings and focusing instead on recent data that does show inflation trending lower, as I mentioned. That in the hopes that the economy is heading for a soft lending and profits will pick up later this year. Traders and analysts typically see this golden cross as an indicator that a market trend is about to turn more positive. The opposite, (laughs) the unfortunately named death cross, would indicate a bearish change. The major major catalyst for all that was last Friday's jobs report. The report was so strong, we had 517,000 jobs that the expectations for interest rates changed. The traders on Wall Street now expect uh, 0.25% rate hikes uh, at its next couple meetings, and they also think there's a decent chance of a third hike come June. Now, the Fed is actually taking a bolder stance than I think many people expected. The new outlook was reinforced uh, just these uh, past, uh, what was it, Thursday, I guess, or Tuesday, uh, by Mr. Powell's comments. He said that the, well, he didn't say, but it, the, the Fed is determined to squash inflation. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to see how, good, how well they're doing that on Tuesday when we see the CPI report. But, And I'm quoting uh, Mr. Powell uh, from Tuesday when he was speaking in D.C. He said, the disinflationary process, that is the process of getting inflation down, has begun and it's begun in the goods sector but it has a long way to go these are the very early stages of disinflation he went on to say that the reality is we're going to react to the data we meaning the fed so if we continue to get for example strong labor market reports or higher inflation reports it may well be the case that we have to do more and raise rates more than is priced in well we'll see i guess excuse me and now on thursday this past week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, it was just kind of a nuts day. It was up and down and up and down. Um, it, it, the market, it, well, let's just focus on the Dow. The Dow was up more than 300 points early in the session, but it wound up closing down by 249 points. Now, what caused the down draft? Nobody was really sure, but it kind of looked like uh, the yield curve. That is how you plot out interest rates over 30 years traders who had bet the Fed would start lowering interest rates this year as inflation has moderated have, uh, as they say, re-evaluated this following the hot economic data and comments from the central bank officials. And concerns over the Fed and its future policy off- offset positive responses to the latest batch of corporate earnings. And traders have now pushed the uh, spread, the gap on the two- and ten-year Treasury uh, notes to to an inverted on the inverted yield curve. It's the largest difference since the early '80s, and that is typically a sign of rising concern over the potential um, inc- rate of more rate hikes. You know, and stocks retreated again on Thursday uh, as the options traders kept ro- piling into bets targeting a six percent Fed peak. Heretofore, it's been talked about as five. And uh, so the S&P was down as a result of that, too. And yet, in the real economy, there's little sign of impending doom. Weekly jobless claims, for instance, are hovering around their lowest levels since the late 1960s. And again, this was with millions of fewer people just in general, as well as uh, f- millions uh, of work- yeah, fewer people working. And this, despite the high-profile pro- layoff announcements at uh, the big tech companies and also like Disney, But understand that uh, they're not everybody, but they are the high profile. And when they say, oh, we're laying off 5% of this or 8% of that or what have you, in the greater scheme of things, it's almost no meaningful figure. Nothing against the folks that got affected by it. That's not the issue here. But in the big picture sense, it isn't that significant. Now, this might be, and I mean, I see it from talking to some folks, this might be one of the most hated stock market rallies in history. I don't know why, but it is. Global stocks from end of the year are up about 8%. The S&P is up about 7 The NASDAQ is up almost 13%. And the uh, formerly risky speculative stocks are outperforming their peers. Well, according to J.C. Perret of All-Star All Charts, easy for me to say, Since October 3rd, when everything turned in favor of the international stocks, the difference in returns really stands out. During the time we just mentioned, the emerging markets are up 20%, developed markets outside of North America are up 26%. So let's look at the U.S. sector since uh, the bull market started last June. And again, this is data from All-Star chart. Consumer discretionary stocks up over 30 percent, industrials up 25 percent, finance and technology up over 20 percent. You know, market breadth, that's how many companies are actually participating, has improved so much. We're now seeing more stocks making new 52-week highs than we saw when the S&P, Dow and Nasdaq were peaking in late 2021. Yeah, Contrary to what you might believe from our friends in the financial media, there's a lot, many stocks are making new highs today and then we at the quote-unquote market highs. So you have to remember, this is a market of stocks, not a stock market. Everybody doesn't go up and down at the same time. Just because the financial media seem to be slaves to the three major market indicators doesn't mean you have to be. The market is definitely not just the basket of those large cap indes- indexes that the financial media focuses on. You know, and it's obvious today why interest rates rose last year. Well, the top economists called the direction of the 10-year Treasury bond correctly only 35% of the time. That's less than a coin flip, per crane out, Pete. And yet they're being interviewed. Oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, once again, don't act on what you see from the television but you may have noticed that good cheer is definitely absent. Many are still skeptical of the rally for any number of reasons, from lofty valuations, in their opinion, to alleged disconnects between what they think is economic reality and the markets. Some argue this is a good exit point to take advantage of higher CD rates, well, maybe for a parking place, but not as an investment, and at least it's too early to enter stocks, they think. Well, we think this ignores a very simple point. Over a year from the stock's last high, I believe the risks of being bearish are no likely greater than the risks of being bullish. According to Gallup, the uh, research folks, a record share of Americans pulled by them say that they expect stocks to fall over the next six months. Now, that's not exactly an overly positive view, is it? 32% 32% of those folks expect stocks to go down a little, 16 to go down a lot, for a total bearish number of 48%. Now, that's higher than any other time in which Gallup asked the question, going all the way back to 2001. Now, that makes no sense. No sense whatever. You we had a positive markets, um, what, eight of, since 2008? We've had positive markets with the exception of two uh, rather quick down years in the interim. And now we're down a little bit and folks are uh, looking to, uh, well, dive off high places. Uh, You know, I think one of the challenges is, and this is absolutely not a scientific study, um, unless someone has been actively involved in investing and or the investment business for more than 15 years, They've never seen a recession. They've never seen bad markets. They don't know how to act. And so there's a lot of this herd instinct stuff. You know, what'd he say? What'd he say? And they're acting off that. So it becomes, uh, well, frustrating to your humble and obedient servant because facts don't seem to be con- uh, getting in the way of uh, conclusions. But that's not unusual. You know, emotions are what drive these things. So, uh, <laughs> see, Americans are more bearish. And again, this is according to Gallup. On stocks than they were in April of 2020 when we went into the lockdowns and more bearish than on 2007 on the eve of the financial crisis. What the heck? You know, if you look at the history of bullishness and bearishness on on the part of the public, it suggests that sentiment about stocks tends to be a contrary indicator. If you look at the American Association of Independent Investors, uh, which is basically a, a resource for folks who like in investment clubs and stuff, uh, that they create this survey regularly, and that's really pretty much the conclusion. Uh, it's if what they're saying is negative, then look for the market to be positive, and vice versa. Uh, you know, last year, for example, 46% of folks expected stocks to go up, 29 expected percent expected to go down 14 said they'd go up a lot well the total return last year was uh, with the S&P off 18 percent and I don't know if that's a lot in most people's mind but that's what it was and the Nasdaq's total return was down 32 percent now that is a lot but what we're talking about here is recency bias in other words the tendency to think of what just happened most recently in a particular circumstance is again going to repeat itself going forward that is faulty logic. Now, in in my view, the risks of missing an early rebound are much greater than those of dealing with the final sell-off, plunge, drop-out, whatever you want to call it. Now, even missing the first increase of a bull market move can be a really great setback because you don't just miss that initial percentage, you miss the compound growth on that percentage over the entire bull market. I have a um, I don't really, but I have two hypothetical investors I work with, Biff and Muffy. Very fine people, but uh, they were, they they have different investment objectives. Now, Muffy had perfect timing. Going back to 2009, she had $100,000. She put it in the S&P on March 9th. That was the day that the market turned uh, after the big sell-off. Now, Biff, though, he's a slow learner. He had to wait for the all-clear signal. He jumped in on March 17th. Now, that's only a little what, a little over a week later, but the stocks were already up 15% from that period. Now, 11 years later, when the market closed in February of 2020, the day the S&P peaked before the lockdowns all kicked in, Muffy had achieved a 528% return bringing her $100,000 to 628000 Biff's return was not ugly. He had 446%. He had $546,000 return. But that eight days cost him a bunch of money. And then when you compound it, it's even more. You know, the, there, there is an adage in the business that I've always adhered to. is that People say, well, when's the best time to invest? Real simple, when you have the money. Because if it's high, well, you get it at that price. If it's low, you'll buy it at that price. You know, just consistently investing, you'll get an average of prices that tend, typically tend to work out for you. Now, the long-term effect of missing even some of an early bull market can be pretty costly. Potentially a whole lot more costly than enduring that decline because that is retraced. Remember, stocks' long-term returns do include all the bear markets and any other corrections along the way. So over a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year period, it includes all the so-called bad stuff. And so the compound growth in good times wipes away the bad. And you can look at the charts. You can prove it yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is, a, I believe, a chief reason why stocks are such a very valuable and important vehicle for retirement investing and any of your goals needing longer-term growth. The early recovery is your payoff for having the discipline to stick through the tough times. A decline turns into a loss only if you sell. That's called a realized loss. And if you stick it out for the rebound, the next bull market eventually offsets that loss and usually, and then some, keeps you up on the path to long-term market-like returns. And that's what we're all looking for, right? Yes, we are. So, You know, for whatever reason, this goes back to I think kind of the negative attitude uh, that's prevalent now. Uh, But once folks do own stocks, they're not holding them uh, stocks or funds for as long as they used to. Now, uh, an an analysis from Etoro, E capital T O R O, is a uh, it's a it's an investment firm. They uh, the average holding period for U.S. stocks in uh, 2022 was 10 months. In the mid-70s, the average holding period was five years. Hmm. ADD? I don't know. But uh, those who have short holding periods are informally referred to as traders. Okay, And in contrast with longer holding periods, those are investors. That's generally how it's split up. Now, you can be both at different times, but that's generally the categories. And while the average holding period has down a bunch over the last 50 years, it appears that most uh, retail market, which is uh, you and me, uh, folks understand the importance of thinking long-term. According to Bespoke Investment Group, they did a global retail investor survey of 10,000 folks in 13 countries, and they said that the vast majority of people take the long view. 12% of those folks measure their typical investment period in days or weeks, those are the trader guys. 63% see it in years or decades. And that's the reason they're investing in the first place. The focus is on long-term financial security, that's 42%, and funding retirement, 31%. And time is your best friend. The SP and p history shows that the chance of gaining on one day is a coin toss, but over 80% with a three-year holding period. So why do people trade? Well, real simple. They think they by doing so, they'll help them get better returns. Catch-22. Most professional investors, excuse me, in most years fail to beat the market. That's, that's not good. And history shows that the few who do beat the market in a given year, most fail to outperform consistently in subsequent years. And active trading, oh, by the way, also comes with higher transaction costs and taxes. So if you're doing it outside of a retirement plan, uh, well, you know, you're see, the thing is that when you're trading short term, all the gains are considered as ordinary income. And the only way to offset those is with losses directly, one for one. So you got to have some pretty good gains to offset the losses because in trader math, you lose about uh, 8 out of 10 on 8 out of 10 transactions. That's an average, okay, but that's generally kind of a rule of thumb. So you got to be pretty good at that stuff. And part of the challenge is that picking outperforming stocks and, and sectors isn't a 50-50 shot because most stocks individually don't uh, outperform the index over time because the index itself, the ind- indexes themselves, are driven by a small handful of massive outperformers. You're listening to Money Management, and it's powered by the Opus 111 Group. I'm Mike Mayo. Now, what you need to be aware of is that recessions are an economic, not a stock market phenomenon. And speaking over my experience, I've never come across a, a recession that had as much of a, how would I say, forewarning as what this would be can be will be i don't know Uh, i mean they just used to just show up because they were economically driven Um, it wasn't a function of headlines and people's opinions and a lot of other stuff like that now the the economy and the stock market while not the same do intersect so investing during a contraction may require some tweaks to your portfolio now what kind of tweak? So note, tweak is not major surgery, okay? This doesn't imply a wholesale change. Instead, investing before, during, and even after a recession is all about reassessing your asset allocation and reevaluating your stock and fund positions so that you can take advantage of what could be great opportunities to set up your wealth for growth when things do in fact turn around. So let's go, start with that asset allocation. Now, according to the B. Bauer study, about 88% of your portfolio's total return comes from asset allocation. Not which stock or bond did you buy, not what uh, did you buy at the higher, the low, any of that stuff. It's how is your portfolio allocated. So that, that means your actual mix of stocks, bonds, alternative investments that make up your holdings. Now, asset allocation is a combination of your goals, your time horizon, actually time horizons, because you're, especially for retirement, there's not just one goal. You know, you got to have different buckets for different types of uh, potential uh, needs going into the future. Uh, In addition to those, your risk tolerance, among other factors. So how do you determine what could be the right allocation? Well, there is no one size fits all, contrary to, again, what the media might lead you to believe and or certain magazines or um, websites. Uh, it has nothing to, there is no if you're this age and have this much money, then allocate your money this way. That's that's real. Uh, let's just say basic, OK, um, and could be totally misleading. But if we ignore relative risk is a, a, a requirement for asset allocation, the best portfolio for most people would probably be, yes, no kidding, 100% stocks. Oh my goodness, what's that man saying? Well, 100% stocks historically have produced the best long-term returns. I'm talking about the S&P. Because for example, from 1926, that's when they have the legitimate records for the S&P through the end of 2021, um st- uh through the end of 2021, the average annualized return of an all-stock allocation was 12.3%. The 100% all-bond portfolio return was about (laughs) 6.3%. That can create quite a spread at the other end, but risk is an important, but not only factor in determining your asset allocation main challenge with an all-stock portfolio return is, well, let's talk about it. It's less consistent in terms of your returns. It uh, has a wide range of returns, m- much wider for stocks. from uh, Over that period, from 26 to 21, it ranged from down 43 to up 54%. On the other hand, bonds range from down 8 to plus 46, a much narrower range. But again, netting all those ups and downs, it was still 12.3 for stocks and 6.3 for bonds. So sometimes, though, the norms go out the door. And last year was certainly a case in point. For only the third time since 1926, stocks and bonds declined in the same year. Now, what does that mean? Not much, but that's a fact. So part of the reason for the connection was that U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds of all types are highly negatively correlated to unexpected inflation which means that inflation goes up they, these prices go down so that's just once again that's just math so getting your asset allocation right isn't just about a decision between stocks or bonds because you can choose between a large and small companies or ones in the U.S. versus the outside U.S. and as I mentioned earlier don't neglect the international markets that's where a whole lot of fine companies are, and you can get into them through ETFs or funds and not have to worry about trying to pick companies uh, in a place that you're not familiar with. But do your homework. Now, you may select stocks that pay a regular dividend or bonds that pay an interest coupon. There's many choices, and each has distinct characteristics and positives and negatives attached to it. That's what we do. I mean, we advisors do is help, help you understand that. Now, asset allocation is very important, but there's not one that's right for everybody. There is no one-size-fits-all, as I was saying earlier. You can't just say, give me a can of asset allocation and I'll be all good to go. No. Uh, You have different needs, goals, objectives, age, income, all that stuff. Now, here's a note. When risk is mistaken, many investors tend to make rash decisions in the presence of negativity that can uh, that can often affect future growth in their value. In other words, during markets that are strongly up, most individuals tend to take on too much risk. But then in a down market, they run for the hills. You know, it's like, why? You sell when stocks are down, and then they go put their cash in the first national mattress. <laughs> and they're just shooting themselves in the foot two different times. So after identifying the appropriate risk for you, and that's overall portfolio risk, investors can be more comfortable staying the course and writing out those ups and downs because we can structure portfolios so that you have a predictable cash flow re, uh, regardless of what the individual assets are doing within your portfolio. I mean, yeah, that's what, well, again, that's one of the things we do. So reevaluate your positions. Holding the best issues within your chosen asset allocation can also contribute to your returns. But what does best mean, especially in a down market? Well, there's thinking that investors shouldn't sell their holdings that are down during a decline. Because they shall have realized those losses and so lose the opportunity to benefit from market recovery. See, realized losses means you actually sold. Realized gains means you actually sold. Unrealized is, of course, the opposite of that. So uh, there's definitely a fair assessment and a time-tested strategy that works when you have time to wait for the market upswing. But there's also a method of reviewing your holdings and cutting out dead weight. Last year, the speculative parts of the markets, those companies that were unprofitable primarily because they had relied on cheap financing to grow their businesses, they still ran up to high market valuations. Well, they were repriced to reflect the true nature of their businesses. If you have some of those, well, they probably declined a bunch. But should you continue to hold them? Well, maybe there's a better option. In some, locking in losses so you can sit on the sidelines will not allow that money to generate you any gains when the market turns up. However, trimming or selling out of positions to upgrade to what you believe would be higher quality, longer term holdings can certainly take advantage of current market conditions. You know, it's not just about buying stocks and funds that pay dividends. It's also finding growth stocks that pay dividends. I would suggest you look for companies growing both their businesses and increasing their dividends. Companies with bright futures ahead of them, not just companies paying out cash. You can Google something called dividend aristocrats. That's, uh, I think they're the ones that have paid dividends every year for something like 25 or 30 years or something crazy like that. And uh, no, the, these stocks typically don't pay 8 or 10 percent dividends. No, they pay low dividends because there's a growth component remember how you make money in the market total return dividends and/or interest if it's a bond plus appreciation that's how you make money so those will likely those uh, dividend aristocrats those kinds of companies with uh, dividends and growth attached to them it gets you that two-pronged return profile price appreciation plus income from the dividend it's a lovely thing to have to deal with you know imagine that these could be your uh, daily headlines for the next six months or so, given where we are right now. You know, when stocks go down, the story will be something like stocks fall as recession fears rise. And then when stocks go up, the headlines, stories, etc., will be stocks rise as investors weigh the possibility of a soft landing. They don't know. I mean, markets go up and go down because they go up and go down. I mean, that's it. There's no nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but yeah, sure, you can find some little news thing in there maybe once in a while, but for the most part, it's just how things are going that particular day. Peter Lynch, the, uh, I, I don't know how he did it, but the guy who was the very best money manager I ever saw or heard of, uh, having run the Fidelity Magellan run, Fund for multiple years and beating the S&P every year he did so. Uh, any ca- In any case, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, and I'm quoting, far more money has been lost by investors trying to anticipate corrections than lost in the correction themselves, unquote. Brian Belsky, uh, he is chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets, uh, has these data for you. In the past 90 years, the S&P 500 has only posted a more severe loss in 2022 On four occasions. That was 1937, 1974, that's when I started, 2002, and 2008. He added that in the subsequent calendar years, the index logged better than 20% gains each time with an average price return of 26.5%. See, this is the thing. You know, as I said at the outset of the program, <clears throat> excuse me that you look at these numbers today and say boy we're de- you know we're not doing so good and the market's down and dot da dot, dot, dot well not since last june basically we've moved higher and uh you know you can't be all caught up in the emotion of the day because you're not going to be using well you might be using some of the money today but you're mostly going to be using it at some point in the future not necessarily 20 years but not day after tomorrow either. So there's going to be some time lag in how your uh, results are calculated, okay? And everybody who likely is listening to this has been around long enough to know that those markets I mentioned previously were pretty good. Now, there were days and weeks when they weren't doing so well, but uh, net-net, the record shows that they did well. And if you know that, if you saw that, Then you have to, in my opinion, uh, internalize the fact that that's how markets work and build some emotional calluses so that you can deal with the foolishness that goes on uh, in D.C., on Wall Street, and everywhere else that causes these near-term aberrations in the marketplace. You know, the range of potential outcomes narrows the further out you go. There's still a range between very good and very bad outcomes, I'm talking about the market now, when you look at 10, 15, 20, 30 years returns. But nothing like what even one, three, and five-year ranges you could drive one of the per- those big old Mack trucks through. You can get crushed over a one to five-year period. That is absolutely correct. That's possible, but highly unlikely if you hold on for longer periods. You can still have prior poor outcomes over the long-term, but nothing like the top type of bad markets you see over the short-term. I mean, You can do your own homework and prove that to yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me, dang it. You're not guaranteed anything by extending your time horizon, but the historical numbers have shown the risk of getting annihilated slowly goes away as the years add up. Historical probabilities definitely favor the long-term investor. Now here's some data that will reinforce that for you. More than 75% of 20-year periods have seen annual returns of 8% or more. Almost 96 of the 30-year time frames had annual returns of 9% or more. Now that's not really good news if you're a 65-year-old person, perhaps. Uh, but it's great for someone who's 45, 50, younger. Uh, and it's still good for uh, us more mature folks because it suggests that time is in your favor time is your friend over 30 years that creates a return of more than 1300 percent the worst 30-year return was a gain of 800 percent so it's okay the stock market's long-term return profile has more than made up for the occasional shall we say deficiencies in the short term your patience will also be rewarded. Long-term investors always have a higher probability of success than do short-term investors. That's why traders, it's a tough job to be a trader. I mean, you know, you, you got to be right a lot of times, um, especially when you factor in taxes because most of the taxes are short-term, so that's ordinary income, so yay, howdy. Uh We, as private investors, can get to go to long-term capital gains, which is the best tax rate there is, period. Now, we definitely see a whole wide gap between reality and expectations today, which, to the way I look at the markets, is ample fuel for an upside surprise to drive a new bull market this year and give me some credibility for saying that, uh, you know, I'm not really concerned about a recession. But I'm not concerned about a recession anyway, because, and again, I think this is the, the recency bias. Folks think of recession as 2008. No, 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 no. There was a whole lot of things that came together in a bad way in 2008 and 2009. But a typical, if you will, recession is just a slowing of the economy. And uh, it rejiggers things and resets things so that it can be in position to move higher again. There's no reason to be afraid of a recession as long as you're staying, as far as your investments are concerned, staying with quality, being diversified. You're not trying to be a fortune teller because uh, that's, again, a risky business. And you are looking for how to get to where you want to be when you want to be there in, in a manner that you feel comfortable getting there. Don't be looking at Uh, online computer programs to say, well, if you're this old and, you know, got this much money, then do this and all will be uh, revealed. No. Stay with quality, diversify, and don't get out of the market. So this is the end of our little show for this week. I thank you very much for listening. We got to make some sacrifices somewhere and get the Zags back on stream here again. Uh, But uh, Saturday, boy, today, ha ha. We're going to get another chance to get back in the W column, so let's go get them. And We'll be back next week with more market news for you. I hope you have a positive and productive week, and I thank you again for
0: listening. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of money management with Opus 111's Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? Email us at info at opus111group.com or visit our website, opus111group.com. Sections of this radio show contain forward-looking statements that are not guarantees of future performance. This information is from sources we believe to be reliable. However, we cannot guarantee that it is accurate or complete. These comments are for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice, nor as a recommendation to buy or sell any security or investment product mentioned in this show. Investing involves risks and past performance is not indicative of future results. Individual circumstances do vary. Please consult an investment professional prior to making any investment decisions.